What a great song to remind us of our need to remember, because how easy it is that we um, forget. You see, just last week, the Gospel Coalition shared the results of a recent survey of Americans, uh, particularly focused on evangelicals. The, the 2020 Ligonier Ministries State of Theology Survey is a biennial survey conducted by Lifeway Research that, quote, takes the theological temperature of the United States and reveals what Americans believe about God, Jesus Christ, the Bible, sin, worship, and, and ethics. Again, focusing on evangelicals, which, by the way, they define as people who strongly agree with the following four statements. Number one, the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Number two, it is very important for me personally uh, to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Pay attention to these last two. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin, and only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. That's the definition of, a, of an evangelical seems clear enough. I think most, if not all of us, would agree with those particular statements. And yet, in the words of the Gospel Coalition article, the results of the survey were not encouraging. Say it again, the survey was taken of Americans generally, but focused on those who call themselves evangelicals, who agree with those four statements. Survey revealed incredibly the following results. The statements are followed by the percentage of, not Americans, but evangelicals who agreed with the statement, the percentage they agreed with the statement. Ready? Jesus was a great teacher, but He was not God. Almost one in three who called themselves evangelical agreed with that statement. Number two, the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being, almost half of those surveyed don't even understand the Trinity. Three, the Holy Spirit can tell me to do something which is forbidden in the Bible. One in five. Shocking. Next, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Two out of three. That is the Arian heresy condemned in the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. What's wrong with us? Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. 51% agreed, which means 49% of evangelicals disagreed. Sin's not that bad. Forgetting the egregious nature of our rebellion. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Almost half. God ex Remembering those last two statements I, I, I told you to pay careful attention to, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, 42%. Whatever happened to Jesus' death being the only way? Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective 
as opposed to subjective, how I feel. Objective truth, one in four. I threw in this last one just because I want to keep reminding you that we should not get too used to the live stream. Worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending, I would add, participating in church, almost 40 which explains why, by the way, that evangelicals are comfortable with attending church, gathering with the church family once, maybe twice a month. The author of the article was correct. The results are not encouraging. Now, why do I bring this up today? Because while some of those statements may be the result of spiritual and uh, or biblical immaturity, some of them are clear heresy. I would go so far to say you cannot, in fact, be an evangelical, even a Christian, if you affirm some of those statements. State of the so called evangelical church is one reason we study the Bible as we do, particularly in verse by verse exposition through the Scripture, to include our current study in 2 Peter. These kinds of statements, not only believed, but even taught by false teachers in the church today, is cause for great concern for the life and health of the church of Jesus Christ. You see, as we read through Peter's letter, especially chapter 2, we, 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 we see that he is clearly upset. Frankly, he's mad. After all, we are talking about Jesus Christ, it's God or not. His gospel, necessary or not. His, his church, necessary to be together or not. His return is coming judgment. Now, now listen, I... I know that at times I can get rather passionate from this pulpit, but if Peter were standing before us today reading this chapter, I believe that you would see a fair degree of passion, angst, concern, even vitriol, condemnation. He's angry. His eyes would be blazing, his fists would be pounding. His words would, be, would come with terrifying force. He is a flamethrower today because the church of Jesus Christ and his people were at stake. He spares no words. Look at the text with me today in our continuing study, 2 Peter chapter 2, the second part of verse 10, all the way to the end of the chapter because I don't want to do this again. Daring, self-willed, they, these false teachers, do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties or glories, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge will be will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong 
They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're stains. He calls them names. They're stains and, and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children or children of the curse. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These false teachers are springs without water, mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Judgment is coming. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would, be, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it, to turn away from the holy commandment, the gospel handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Strong words. As we know well by now, Peter is writing to a church besieged with false teacher. Now, 1 Peter was written because ta attacks uh, against the church came from without. You remember that. 2 Peter was written because attacks came from within, from their own number, wolves in sheep's clothing. And and make no mistake about it, Peter's attitude is markedly different in those two letters. You remember, in the first letter, he actually says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, that is the unbelievers, so that the thing in which they slander, the which they persecute, the which they oppose you and mistreat you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of His visitation. Live good lives, he says it over and over in 1 Peter, so that we can win some. Christ is our example who suffered not for doing evil but doing good. Live godly lives like Christ. And maybe through your testimony, through your good lives, others will become believers with us. You see, persecutors, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know any better. They're just sinners acting like sinners. 2 Peter is an altogether different story. Peter is clearly angry. He has no room for false teachers in the church attacking the church with these false biblical teachings from within. He levels them. It is a difficult letter, but I would add one most appropriate for today because you see Christianity is a faith despite what the survey said. It is a faith built on objective truth, despite what Oprah Winfrey and other 
celebrities say there is no such thing as your truth and my truth as if they can be contradictory. You see, such thinking is purely subjective and is formed by experiences and interpretations of those experiencing experiences. However, truth is not owned by such subjective criteria. It is not even, truth is not even owned by the majority. There is simply truth, and God is the author of all that is true and, and right and good. And we must look to to His self-revelation in His Word, ultimately in His Son, to know Him, to know what is true and right and good. I will say it this way, you cannot know what is true and right and good apart from God. And it is His Word that is the standard by which we judge teachers, all teachers, to include this teacher It is not right or wrong because I say so. What matters is what God says. says, I do not have my truth other than that which is contained herein. Peter has some rather scathing things to say about these false teachers who'd come up with their own teaching, who were denying God's truth. You also know well by now what they were saying. We've said it. Jesus is not coming back, so there will be no judgment. So you can live however you want, and that they did ingloriously. So in this chapter, Peter issues a strong condemnation of them. We outlined the chapter like this, the impact of false teachers, and then the certain judgment. No judgment coming. Yes, it is. The certain judgment of these false teachers and those who do not obey the gospel, and then the character of these false teachers, our text today. It's a stunning, startling condemnation, a well-articulated argument. In those first three verses, he told us, just as there were false prophets in Israel, so also there will be false teachers in the church. Just like Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, wolves in sheep's clothing, They will introduce destructive heresies. They'll deny the master who bought them. They will follow their own sensuality. I know we think of being sensual as a positive word. It is not positive. It's a word which speaks of sexual sin. Further, they will greedily exploit you. But know this, Peter said, while they deny any present or future judgment. Their judgment is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. It is coming. Suggested last week, it needs to be part of our message. I, I, I don't want us to become a hellfire and brimstone kind of, kind of people, but the message is true. Judgment is coming, and there is one way to escape it. Brought us to the second point where Peter declared certain judgment to come. He reminded us of God's judgment in the past against an obstinate, rebellious, and sinful creation, actually. Because, you see, Peter started with angelic beings who sinned and were therefore cast into hell awaiting certain future judgment. He reminded us of God's worldwide judgment in the flood of Noah's day when all the imaginations and inclinations of the people were wicked. They were evil all of the time, continually. He talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, where God judged by fire the five cities of the plain for their gross sexual immorality, among other things. But don't miss this. 
There was a word of hope in the midst of all of that. In the midst of those judgment, God knows how to preserve his people. He rescued Noah and his family, eight in all, through the ark. He rescued Lot and his daughters, telling us that in the midst of all of that, Lot's righteous soul was tormented by the sin around them. And I, I made the suggestion we too should be tormented to our very souls of, of the evil that is around us. We should not actually get used to it, which is as, is, as we are assaulted day after day, we, that's what they'd like us to do. Peter then reminded us while rescuing his own people, he will keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially, don't miss this, especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise God's ultimate authority. He's been building a case through these verses. You can see the hammer of God's judgment rising higher and higher through the passage. Now Peter lowers the boom, unloads on these false teachers, and again spares no words, having just suggested God is especially irritable with sexually sinful people as well as those who despise authority. In other words, arrogant people. Peter now illustrates how these false teachers fit that description to a T. He he covers that in reverse order and adds how they were also greedy. And then he ends the chapter with some very sobering words for us today. Very sobering words. Let's look at all of that following outline, the arrogance of the false teachers, their hedonism, their greed, their teaching as well as the final end. I know that's lots of points. We'll move quickly again. I didn't want to do this again. Peter starts by telling us that they are daring and self-willed. Another translation maybe that you have has it bold and arrogant. Bold and arrogant. Let me say this. An indispensable quality or characteristic of believers is humility. And that trait ought to be most clearly seen in Christian leaders. Anytime a leader or teacher becomes self-promoting, arrogant, proud, and unteachable, run for cover. If you decide to leave this church for whatever reason, maybe you move away or whatever, and you find a church, and you find that the the ministry is all about the self-promotion, run as fast as you can. Peter illustrates it by this arrogance by their treatment of angelic majesties, literally glories or glorious ones. It's very confusing, quite challenging. It's led to lots of different interpretations. I'm not going to go into all of those this morning. It seems, it seems we can boil it all down by saying these, people were so, these guys were so full of themselves that they had no respect for angelic beings fallen in the form of de- demons or unfallen angels. They thought so highly of themselves... We can take them on. We can decry them. We, we, we get this idea from, from Jude. Remember I told you that 2 Peter 2 is largely found in Jude. It's, it, it appears that Peter used Jude for his own purposes. Seems to be what he's referring to here. Look at Jude, verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, see, 
and revile angelic majesties. There it is. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, that's in a book called The Assumption of Moses. We'll talk about that. Did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said instead, the Lord rebuke you. The idea, you boil it all down, seems to me that these false teachers were so arrogant, so full of themselves that they reviled demons, even when Michael, the very archangel, a leader of the angels, would not do that, but would instead entrust their judgment to God. Peter says these guys revile fallen angels, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not do that. We're not, again, lots of guesswork, lots of reading. We're not sure exactly how they demonstrated this particular arrogance, but these guys, we can, we can say, thought themselves mightier than angels. We'll talk about that more when we get to Jude, but listen to this. Every once in a while, I see guys on TV. Um, I, I watch it every once in a while just for humor's sake. Actually, it's, it irritates me. But you'll see guys on TV challenging Satan to some, some kind of duel. You, you've heard that before. You know, they, they get so proud of themselves. They're, they're so confident in themselves. Bring it on, Satan, because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Listen very carefully. Do not do that. First of all, Satan is not omnipresent, and so he's probably not hanging out in Boone, and I'd like to keep it that way. He's got more important fish to fry. Don't be so arrogant that you think that you can take on angelic majesties, glorious ones, I think in the form of of demons. Don't do it. Peter goes on to describe them further in verse 12 where he compares them to unreasoning wild animals simply born as creatures of instinct is the idea. They They just do what comes natural to them. Unfortunately, given that we are born in sin, to do what is natural is in fact evil and ungodly. This is an incredibly important point given the context of this chapter. Those who want to justify sexual immorality saying, I'm just being true to myself. Have you heard that? I'm just being who I am are dreadfully wrong. I agree with Al Mohler when he says, the question is not, are you sinfully bro- uh, sexually broken? The question is, in what way are you sexually broken? Because we all are. And if we're going to be true to ourselves, we're going to live in sexual sin. Don't do that. We don't want to be true to ourselves because our true selves are terribly sinful. And as a result, Peter says, These are worthy of nothing except to be captured and slaughtered, destroyed like these wild animals. They will suffer wrong as the wages of doing wrong. Strong words of condemnation brings us to the hedonism of false teachers, verses 13 to 14. Hedonism can be defined as the pursuit of pleasure at at all cost. Here, he is speaking of their sinful sexual pleasures. Again, as I said last week, given the mixed audience with children present, I don't want to go into great detail, although frankly, Peter does, Jude even more so. When you think of sexual sin, 
you normally think of what is done under the cover of darkness, right? These were so committed to their sinful sexual pleasures that they, what they did, they did in the daytime for all to see. So Peter calls them names. He said they're stains, they're blemishes. Please notice he uses strong words, even harsh words of condemnation. These words were specifically chosen because they're the opposite of what he calls us as followers of Christ to be in chapter 3 when he says, therefore, beloved, beloved, since you look, you're looking for these things, that is the return of Christ and the judgment to come, be, be diligent to be found in peace, spotless and blameless. It's the opposite of these stains and blemishes. These false teachers could be found day and night in sinful rebellion, covered with stains and blemishes. We are to be found when he returns, spotless and blameless. I want to say this very gently. Say this very gently. There are some activities in which you perhaps engage which you would not want to be doing when Jesus came back, when Jesus comes back. We want to be spotless. We want to be blameless. Of course, we do not do that on our own, but by the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, is a person. Remember back in chapter 1, Peter's primary desire for us is that we be diligent to make certain of his calling and choosing us. Be diligent to make your calling and election sure, he said. This does not mean that we earn our salvation. It means that we make every effort having been called by Him to persevere by the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit to persevere to prove the reality of our faith when He returns. We should be different people. False teachers, whether Jesus returns day or night, will be found steeped in sin. Verse 14 says, in fact, they have eyes full of adultery. This is a sordid picture. It literally is translated having eyes full of adulteresses. It means these guys looked at every woman with a potential for adultery. They see women as sex objects to be exploited, married or not. They never cease from sinning. They sin with their eyes notice and act on it when given every opportunity during the day or night, didn't matter, sinning with their eyes, exploiting women. Wow. The clear condemnation of lust and the current plague called pornography. Next. See the greed of these false teachers at the end of verse 14 through verse 16. They had hearts trained in greed, accursed children that they are. They were only in it. We boil all that down. I'm just going to go through this very quickly. They were only in it for the money. Only in it for the money. Exploit you. Greedy. They, They see you as potential objects to exploit, to 
to get more for themselves. You only have to look at the prosperity gospel preachers and their lavish lifestyles. They are clearly in it to fleece the flock, wolves in sheep's clothing. Very interestingly, Peter compares them to Balaam, whose story is found in Numbers 22 to 24, actually a little bit beyond that. Remind you, the the Israelites were camped on the outskirts of Moab to the east of the land of promise. Balak was the king of Moab, and he'd seen what the Israelites had done to any people that was in their way, so he called for Balaam, who was a local prophet, to come and put a curse on Israel. Now, when you read the story, as I've done many times, it, it seems a bit confusing, a bit challenging. I mean, it seems when you're reading that Balaam is a good prophet. I mean, he shows up and four times he doesn't curse Israel as Balak asked him to. He, he blesses them. So what does Peter mean when he says, they, these false teachers, forsook the right way, the way of righteousness had gone astray, following the, the way of Balaam? It seems Balaam was a good guy, did what was right, but a careful reading reveals he was, in fact, not. First, Balaam is clearly in it for the money. Sure, he was not allowed to, to curse Israel, but he wanted to. He wanted to make a, a little money on the side. You, you, you see, it didn't matter to him what he said or, or who he cursed as long as he got paid. This is where we read the story about Balaam and the donkey. As Balaam was going to Balak, Balak to give a prophecy an angel of the Lord met him on the, on the way to slay him. The donkey turned several times, each time earning the wrath of, of, of Balaam. Finally, the donkey turned back to Balaam and said, basically, Liv, what is wrong with you? I have served you faithfully, and if I didn't serve you faithfully now, you'd be dead. And then God opened Balaam's eyes to see, what, to see the angel with a sword drawn and basically says, go ahead, Balaam, go make your buck. That's all you're in it for anyway. Because he loved, notice, he loved the wages of unrighteousness. He was just going. God wouldn't let him pronounce the curse, but he would have. Very interesting in the next chapter, Numbers 25, we see that some Israelite men started bringing Moabite women into the camp. The, the, the idea was to turn the hearts of the men away from the true and the living God and to bow down, we see in that passage, to the, the God of Moab, Baal. And we see later in Numbers 31 in Revelation 2, that was Balak's, or excuse me, Balaam's idea. I wonder how much he got paid for that one. Brings us quickly to our fourth point, the teaching of the false teachers. I've been saying, given what Peter corrects through this book, what the false teachers were saying, Jesus is not coming back. There will be no judgment. Live however you want. In verses 17 to 19, we don't clearly have those points spelled out. We don't know specifically how or what they taught, but we find their teaching characterized here, and it was empty. Here's how it was empty. They made vain promises of freedom. We find that they went after those who had just recently become Christians. That was their target. They enticed them to indulge in sinful, sexual, fleshly desires. Look at, verse, look at the verses. Verse 17. They're springs without water, mist driven by the storm. Both springs and storms make promise of water, but these springs and storms brought none. Just like the false teachers, empty promises, therefore for them was reserved 
Black darkness, judgment was coming. Verse 18, they spoke. They speak arrogant words of vanity, empty, arrogant words enticing young believers to give in to fleshly desires through their sensual sin. Who are these young believers? The end of the verse says that these are those who barely escape from the world in its lifestyle of error. These were new Christians. They are trying to, these false teachers trying to draw them back in for their own sensual, sexual, sinful desires. Verse 19, all the while promising, don't miss it, freedom. If that is not a message for today, I do not know what is. Sexual revolution equals sexual freedom. Not just outside the church, inside, from those who claim to be Christ followers, again, as it, especially as it relates to sexual sin. It is time, they say, to do away with the restrictive puritanical morality. What is this one man for one woman for life? Lust through pornography is rampant and is seemingly no longer condemned. Premarital sex is fine. It's not that big a deal. Everyone's doing it. Surveys after survey of professing Christian, professing Christian young adults reveal that they are sexually active. Extramarital sex is right in the church. Divorce, no big deal. And then there is homosexuality clearly condemned in Scripture. As we've seen in this chapter, it didn't address it. Clearly condemned with Sodom and Gomorrah. Church after church, denomination after denomination is losing its commitment to sexual purity, approving that which the Bible clearly condemns. False teachings in the church. So they promise freedom, sexual freedom, but themselves are slaves of corruption. Peter states a proverb, for by what a man is overcome by this season's slave. The promise, they promise freedom, but the truth is they can't promise it because they themselves are enslaved. Bringing us very quickly, last point, conclusion, I'm almost done. So I really want to focus on because we need to listen. Verses 20 to 22, like the author of Hebrews, Peter warns severely. He warns us severely against turning from the way of righteousness. Verse 24, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. If you give in to the enticements of sin, you, you give in to what everyone else is doing, you give in because no one really knows. You, you give in because it's time that we leave that old kind of sexual morality behind, sensual sin, and turn from Christ and become entangled again with the world's defilements. Your final state is worse than your first. It's, it's what Peter says. This is the context. Verse 21, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Meaning, it would have been better for you never to have been in this building and heard the gospel than for you to say thanks but no thanks. I am, I am deeply 
concerned for you. Better to have never heard the gospel, professed a false belief in the gospel, and then turned from it to follow your sinful desires. Without doubt, you, like me, can think of many you know and in fact love who have made professions of faith only to deny those professions to turn to the world's sexual sin and its entanglements. I choose sin over Jesus. Verse 22, it happened to them according to the true proverb, singular, meaning both these proverbs communicate the same truth. A dog returns to its own vomit and a pig, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Challenging verses of severe warning for us. Don't make a profession of faith and then turn from it to, to, to give in to your own sexual desires, sinful desires. The consequences are eternally disastrous. I must acknowledge one of the challenges of these verses is it seems that a true believer, the true believers can themselves turn back to sin, forsake the gospel, and be lost. I, I believe the overall teaching of Scripture is that once God saves you, you are saved eternally. So what do these verses teach if we are trying to be consistent with the rest of Scripture? To be fair, again, it is a challenging text. I don't want to just explain it away. Peter addresses these people with redemptive language. After all, they had escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They are entangled again and overcome. They've known the way of righteousness and turned from it. Very challenging. But again, comparing Scripture with Scripture, it seems salvation, God's salvation is eternal, so we look for a different explanation. What do we have? I would simply say these two things to you, and I'm done. First, grievously, the church, the evangelical church, as we saw at the beginning, this church has professing but not genuine believers. Those who have heard the gospel, perhaps even made a spurious commitment to the gospel, but have never been truly saved. These false teachers are a case in point. They have the, they have the trappings of faith, but they were never truly saved. How do we know? Second, last verse of the chapter indicates that very thing. Notice, the dog returns to its vomit, the pig to its mud. The dog was still a dog. The pig was still a pig, and they did what dogs and pigs do. At this time, those were both considered unclean animals. You didn't have pet dogs or pigs in your house. They did what dogs and pigs do, meaning there was no true change of nature. You can put a bow on a pig, but it's still a pig. You can call a dog your baby, but it's still a dog. In no sense does it actually ever become your son or your daughter, no ma matter how much you like it. It's still a dog. Same here. Never become a child of God. 
First John says it this way, they went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they were not really of us. I'm, I'm pleading with you today to persevere, to, to pursue holiness, to make your calling and election sure. This is not a game. This is serious.